live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hesh. I've heard that the fame of this podcast has carried you all the way to Hollywood. Is that true? Well, Los Angeles and San Diego. So I guess Hollywood. You've been around this week. Uh, yes, for four days out to the West Coast. That was business or? Yeah, I was there speaking. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Okay. Welcome back. This is part two. And this is on our series on Holocaust Reflections. Both this week and next is one topic you mentioned. Sort of. I want to talk about the wholesale theft from the Jews in the 1930s in Germany and during the war across Europe. We are obviously aware of it, but the enormity is staggering, although it is obviously easier to understand a million pounds than a million lives, but this was the greatest non-land theft in history, followed by the greatest cover-up. The figures are dizzying, not just the obvious, which is uh, you know money, silver, etc., but shares, art, furniture. And the important element in this is that it's often seen as a byproduct. If you get rid of the Jews, so they've got stuff lying around and you take it, it was actually planned. And this week, I'd like to concentrate on what was taken and as importantly, how and the immediate aftermath of it all, of the war itself. And next week, we'll look at how much of an attempt there was to give it back. Everyone knows that the Swiss didn't exactly cover themselves in glory when it came to money, which, of course, is a very Swiss trait. But the extent is eye-opening because you have housewives, firms, neighbors, everyone is in on the act. But before we start, just to mention that this week's podcast is Le'ilu Nishmas Rebeloza Ben Rebheim. So this all starts long before World War II with the Nazi rise to power in 1933, at which time they imposed an unofficial economic boycott on the Jews to intimidate them into selling their businesses. The Germans needed money and the Jews were the easiest to go after. So they targeted stores and the professions. So this was by intimidation. All the photos you see of smashing glass and the signs. So in the main, that was a few years later. Here they start by publicly denouncing Germans who frequent Jewish stores. Uh, you have uh, stormtroopers posted outside Jewish businesses to harass customers and public institutions were forbidden to use the Jews. So Jewish businesses either went under or were forced into sale for a fraction of their value. Of 50,000 Jewish-owned stores in 1933, only 9,000 remain in 1938, so 80% have disappeared. Then there were three forms of taxation introduced. The first was a tax on migration. We want you out, but once you're going, we will have 20% or 25%, in fact, of anything you take. 
And of course, I mean, anyway, Jews couldn't export anything of real value at that time, art, precious metals, etc. I guess that answers a question I've always had, why more people didn't leave in the 1930s. I guess you're saying because if you would leave then, you'd be starting from scratch, the entire business. You'd leave everything behind, which meant unless you had a sense of what the future held, you were unlikely to leave in, say, 1935. How did they stop the Jews from exporting? It was illegal. I mean, if a Jew risks it, they could, first of all, lose their ability to leave the country for sure, but be arrested and perhaps worse. And then there is the next tax, which came a few years later. It's a levy on all Jewish assets. This was imposed in early 1938 after the annexation of Austria. On April the 26th, a law required all Jews in Germany and Austria to register any property or assets valued at more than 5,000 Reichsmarks, which is, well, it was around $2,000 then. It's probably about $35,000 today. This is, you know, furniture, paintings, life insurance, stocks, nothing was left out. And by July 31st, German finance officials had collected paperwork for 7 billion Reichmarks worth of wealth, which was ripe for state-sanctioned theft. Then many Jewish-owned firms were simply falsely charged with tax evasion going back you know, years to the 20s. And so they're forced to pay arrears. They don't have an option. And one legal advisor for the Nazi Ministry of Economics deemed these things the the forerunner to the complete removal of Jews from the German economy. So it wasn't just an afterthought of anti-Semitism. In the national budget for 1938 to 39, an entire 5% came just from wealth confiscated from Jews. Well, this isn't the first time in history that Jews have been unfairly taxed, but never on this scale. And here it's much more than that. It, they want them gone in a way that didn't really exist previously. They had taxed them, uh, but they wanted them as a static target so they could convert them to Christianity or so they could still make use of them economically. Here it was a very different um, setup. And Aryanization enters its final phase immediately following Kristallnacht, the violent nationwide pogroms on November 9th, 10th of 1938. And at that point, there was a forced transfer of all Jewish-owned businesses to non-Jews. So Kristallnacht wasn't just about destruction of synagogues. Well, it was, in fact, even within itself, a financial levy because... As you mentioned, synagogues, over a thousand synagogues were destroyed, 30,000 Jews were arrested, but the Jews were made to pay for all the damage arising from that night of shattered glass, one billion Reichsmarks, which is $400 million at the 1938 rate. It was basically a transition to open robbery of Jewish property in Germany. And business owners benefited as much as private individuals because companies bought businesses that were formerly owned by the Jewish people from the Nazi government, and they made money from them. They are now complicit with the Nazi government. And each of these transactions were deemed legal and, you know, meticulously recorded. It's Germany, after all. And it's remarkable that the killing of people 
was in some ways the fast or the treat part of what the Nazis did. They spent ages on the property, keeping records, processing it, because people were easier to liquidate than property. And this process left nobody out, even German Jewry's aristocrats. Uh, you have Max Warburg, who was a high-profile banker, and possibly Germany's most prominent Jewish family. And initially, he thinks, you know, maybe you can come to some form of accommodation with the Nazis. And he is on many executive boards of companies in Germany, but uh, one after another, they force him out. And in 1936, when he was fired from the executive board of the Hamburg America line, the shipping line, uh, most of his non-Jewish colleagues uh, remained sort of loudly silent. And none of them wanted to be seen as offering him a, a toast, which wouldn't have been viewed positively by the Gestapo. So he sarcastically delivered his own eulogy and said, and now I would like to wish you, dear Herr Warburg, good luck and many blessings to your family. And he goes off to America. He joins the American army. And he was actually one of Hermann Goering's interrogators at the war's end. Do we have any idea how much was stolen in total? So, yes, was coming to that. Uh, the value of Jewish property and assets across Germany and Austria in 33 is estimated at somewhere between two and a half to three billion dollars. Now you have 140,000 Jews emigrating between 1938 and 41, when they had to leave everything behind, basically, and that goes into the Nazi coffers. And the theft becomes endemic when the war breaks out, and it's worth looking at some of the individual countries and people. We will start with Austria. So... Baron de Rothschild, whose art holdings were renowned, had 3,444 artworks taken. His older brother had 919 taken. And all of these, as well as, you know, confiscated art artworks from other important Jewish-owned collections, are carefully inventoried. It is estimated by 1945 that the Nazis had stolen three million pieces of art, which was a fifth of the world's entire art. Uh, you know, Vienna in particular, its passion for culture, affluent population, that was a particularly rich picking field for the, for the Nazis. And then, of course, immediately after the war was over, no one's in a rush to give anything back. Austria is controlled jointly by the Americans and Russians. And in a State Department report from December 52, uh, the accusation was made that the Austrian government has made no progress in the matter of restitution. In fact, it has endeavored to make effective legislation which would compensate former Nazis ahead of victims of Nazi persecution. And nobody intervened? Well, in 1955, Austria is ordered to return stolen property to the rightful owners and where no claim is made to search for the owners. Yet for 14 years after independence, the Austrians never made any serious attempt to find any survivors who had left Austria. In fact, to the contrary, for 24 years, 
no list of unclaimed art of the items was ever published. Uh, instead, a law was passed declaring that the period to claim ends in 1957. And one claimant was argued by the Austrians that since the painting had been in control of the Germans at the end of the war, it had now legally passed into the possession of the Austrian state, and therefore it didn't belong to the claimant anymore. That's Austria. Then there's France. Firstly, the Nazis and their Vichy allies decided in December 41 that the Jews would pay a fine of a billion French francs. But even here, it was art rather than money, which was the staggering theft. According to a Nazi report dated July 15th, 1944, and I quote, between October 1940 and July 1944, 21,903 works of art were shipped to Germany from France, including 5,281 works by Rembrandt, Rubens, and similar on 137 freight trains valued at over $2 billion. I mean, some of these were returned, but many of them were not because the owners were murdered and the family didn't know to claim them. And in 1942, the Germans shipped 40,000 tons of stolen furniture from France in 674 trains, 26,984 freight wagons. In fact, they used greater care in packing the furniture into the trains that they did packing the Jews they deported to the death camps. Were they a similar type of train? They were exactly the same type of train. There is footage of it. And after the war, so unclaimed pieces of art went to French museums for display onto government offices. One piece found its way into the French president's uh, Elysee Palace. Two other pieces were in the French mission to the UN and in the French consulate in New York. So, you know, it's all over the place. Now, some French officials admitted that no effort had been undertaken to find the owners of, you know, the lost art. The head of the administration of the French National Museums from 1977 to 1987 said, yes, it's a very bizarre story. We never attempted to look for the owners. I realize how surprising that must seem. Well, not really. I guess it's only Jewish money, which is the classical as Elio Anavi put it. But perhaps the most surprising aggressor is Holland, which is often imagined to have been a safer haven for Jews during the war. The percentage of Jews killed there tells us otherwise because of a pre-war population of 140,000, including 15,000 refugees from Austria and Germany. Barely 15,000 survived the four years of war. And Netherlands became known in terms of theft as loot thy neighbor. Um, Anne Frank wrote in January 43, terrible things are happening outside. At any time of night and day, poor helpless people are being dragged out of their homes. They're allowed to take only a knapsack and a little cash, and even then they're robbed of these possessions on the way. 
In fact, in Dutch, it's possibly the only language in the world with a specific verb for the systematic looting of a house, Pulsen, which is derived from the Pools and Sun, the name of the notorious Amsterdam moving van company that the Nazi-directed Dutch police used to empty the homes of the 140,000 Jews of Netherlands who were forced into hiding or taken to their deaths during the Nazi occupation. I thought Holland had quite a strong record of saving Jews. They do. The heroism of Holland's uh, savers is almost legendary. Uh, You have groups of workers, housewives, uh, students, even clergy who passed on fugitive Jews from one to the other. They, They hid them in their attics in their basement and it was a network of uh, brave people who risked their own lives for the sake of others and generally total strangers but they were few in number and you know 12 year old Anne Frank uh, there whose notebooks symbolize the Holocaust she is betrayed by a Dutchman so for every Dutch Jew saved 10 others were shipped to their deaths and there was an abundance of those eager to collaborate and collect the seven gilder rewards which the germans offered for every hidden jew the what reward gilders seven gilders is the uh, dutch currency and within hours of the frank's arrest on august 4th 1944, the hiding place of Anne Frank and her family was ransacked and looted, possibly by the neighbors, possibly by this uh, Poulsen uh, moving company. In one year, 17,235 apartments were emptied of their contents. And initially, in October 1940, Jews in Holland had to register any businesses in which they held shares. And many Dutch Jews turned over their assets to Christian neighbors and business partners for safekeeping. You know, there was an unwritten understanding that it would be returned after the war, but much of it never was, and they couldn't do anything about it. There is a, um, a Dutch Holocaust survivor, Jochen Hymans, who puts it, in fact, more bluntly than that. The property we left with the guardians was so well protected that they kept on guarding it forever. As the war ended in Holland, so the Jews were of no special interest, there is a sociologist and writer, Gerlard Durlacher, who was the only survivor of his entire family. He comes back to his pre-war home in Holland and strangers are living there. He knocks on the door of the house next door to ask if anyone knew what had happened and his neighbor is wearing his father's suit. Wow. And according to testimony from an Auschwitz survivor called Stein, he came back and requested the return of the Amsterdam apartment where his family had lived before the deportation. And after a dispute with bureaucracy, he gets permission to enter the home, but there's no gas and electricity. But he's given a bill for three years of unpaid gas from the previous lodgers. So he goes to the town hall, he throws these bills in front of them and demanded that rather than he paying that that they restore the gas and he says i didn't give you a gas account for the murder of my family so the clerks called the police and they threw him out now we could continue country by country but i'd like to move on to two which were outside what is normally considered the theater of war 
The first is Argentina. During the war, Argentina was officially neutral. But between 1942 and 1944, more than 200 German companies established major offices there and until 1945 operated without any Argentine financial controls. And the transfer of capital and assets from Europe, much of it stolen from Jews, was made in the closing war years and immediately after the war uh, for use in helping transport and harbor Nazi war criminals fleeing to Argentina. In fact, the flow of Nazi gold into Argentina became so heavy towards the end of the war that it set off loud alarm bells in the offices of the Treasury. And the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, who is a Jew, we find from recently declassified National Archive documents, he wrote in February 45, so the war still going, to the Secretary of State, suggesting that Treasury Department investigators be sent to Argentina to undertake an investigation of Nazi assets there. And he warned, and this is in writing, Argentina is not only a likely refuge for Nazi criminals, but has also been and still is the focal point of Nazi financial and economic activity in this hemisphere. But the State Department had another agenda and therefore... They uh, had political considerations, and his suggestion was uh, rejected. I mean, after all, it's only Nazis that they were helping. Why did they pick Argentina? Because it was a, a large country, because it was a country that they knew well from their associations with it during the war and presumably because it would accept cash with less questions asked you couldn't have done that in a western country in fact two german banks continued operation in argentina as late as june of 45 which meant there was plenty of time for financial transfers from the ruins of the nazi empire was there ever a Jewish movement to try and go to Argentina and claim back the wealth from there? No, I mean, it's, and it's unprovable in, without access to the type of documentation that they have nowadays. There's a famous photograph taken in Bern in 1947, which shows uh, Eva Peron, the uh, glamorous Argentine first lady, uh, dancing with Switzerland's foreign minister. This was Perron's only visit to Switzerland and was tied more to her Swiss bank account that she opened while in Bern than it was to foreign affairs. And a CIA file from 1972 uh, talks of millions of dollars deposited in Switzerland by her that summer in 47, in other words, much of it reportedly carried in sacks of cash and gold on the chartered aircraft that she traveled on and at least part of that money is believed to have come from the sale of argentine residency permits to nazis fleeing europe which were made by her husband uh, during his tenure as the argentine minister of war and according to some reports during the last days of the war he supplied the german embassy in buenos aires with as many as 8,000 Argentine passports for Germans. Wow. 
Right. We only know about the famous Eichmanns that right. were found there. Right, and Mengele. Thousands. And, uh, absolutely, yes. And according to new evidence discovered by Argentine government researchers in May 1999, Perón's government issued a direct order in 1946 that the Argentine Central Bank accept Nazi gold for deposits. So don't cry for the Jews, Argentina. But now let's end with our last, which is not a country, but an individual, an American, who was one of the most fervent and unrepentant pro-Nazis, a guy called Thomas McKittrick. Heard of him? Not at all. Right. He arguably kept the German side of the war going for months longer than would otherwise have been the case without his intervention at a time, obviously, where tens of thousands of Jewish lives were lost by knowingly facilitating purchases with gold taken from murdered Jews because he was the head of a particularly important bank in Switzerland and was aware of the provenance of the gold, as we will see. And when he died in 1970, his obituary in the New York Times carried only praise for his work as a banker and glossed over his wartime role. In fact, uh, his death notice is probably more notable for what it omitted than for what it said. What bank was he involved in? He headed BIS, a bank in Basel, and he was the head from 1940 to 1946. Uh, the bank was founded in 1930. It's still there today, but it wasn't an ordinary bank. It was a bank for banks. BIS means Bank for International Settlements. And it was initially created, ironically, to ensure that Germany paid off its war reparation debts from World War One. <laughs> its role was, well, let's take it from their own website. Through our work for central banks, we contribute to monetary and financial stability, which is essential for sustained economic growth. Now, since this is an international bank, with the outbreak of war in Europe, there are sort of extreme choices for BIS. Their job, their role is to facilitate different countries being able to transact almost through them. So you have three options now that war's broken out. You can close the bank. You can downsize and basically become dormant until the end of hostilities, or you can remain as active as possible within the bounds of, so to speak, neutrality. And the directors of the bank were unanimous that BIS should keep going, and McKittrick, as its head, assured the Swiss authorities that the bank would be neutral. And the staff would not, and I quote, undertake political activities of any sort whatsoever on behalf of any governments or national organizations. But his declarations of neutrality were proven worthless. He and the rest of the bank's management basically turned the BIS into a de facto arm of the German Reichsbank. Under McKittrick, the BIS carried out foreign exchange deals for the Germans and recognized the Nazi annexation of conquered countries, which meant as far as the BIS was concerned, the Germans had a right legally to use assets from the countries that they had invaded and basically looted. 
it therefore by definition also legitimized the role of the national banks in these occupied countries in appropriating Jewish assets. In fact, the BIS was so indispensable to the overall Nazi war project that the vice president of the Reichsbank, a guy called Emil Pohl, who was later tried for war crimes, once referred to the BIS as the Reichsbank's foreign branch. So the Nazis actually made their international purchases through this bank. In other words, they were able to buy war materials, uh, tungsten oil from neutral countries by paying for them through Switzerland. And the BIS, it, it gets worse. The BIS even allowed the Nazi occupation regimes to take ownership of those nations' shares. So they, they've occupied Belgium, they've occupied France, who all had shares in BIS because it's an international bank. Now the Nazis own all of those shares so that the Axis bloc that was arranged against the Allies held 65% of the bank's voting stock. Now, board meetings were suspended, but annual general meetings continued with member banks voting by proxy. Now, it's true that McKittrick also had another role in intelligence work, which came about through the fact that he was dealing with Germans. So he was able to assess how the Germans were reacting to losses in 1943 and 1944, both generally what the morale was like and personally because he had personal connections. And his relationship with the Third Reich was encouraged both by certain factions within the State Department and by the leadership of the offices of the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA. But this does not excuse his fervent role of crusading for the Nazis. Hermann Schmidt was the CIO of IG Farben, the giant Nazi chemical firm. He sent his sincerest New Year wishes to McKittrick in 1941 and it was definitely a prosperous year for IG Farben because amongst other chemicals they manufactured Zyklon B the gas used to murder millions of Jews and this CIO of IG Farben is a board member of BIS throughout the war once you had nationals of opposing sides working together well when it comes to making money we overlook these petty differences (laughs) And now McKittrick is back in New York in 1942, and he's debriefed by the OSS agents about the intelligence that he has. And he says, you know, Hitler's become indecisive. He doesn't have definitive plans anymore. So he was useful. That does not legitimize what he did. Now, at times, BIS even lent money to the Germans. And McKittrick is quoted, this cozy arrangement causes no concern at the BIS we knew they'd replace it right because they've got steady stream of income absolutely and as late as the spring of 1943 McKittrick traveled to Berlin with an Italian diplomatic visa in his American passport and the trip was authorized by Himmler himself 
after the war, it was revealed how McKittrick was arranging deals with Nazi industrialists to guarantee their profits when the war was over at an income at least equal to their pre-war revenues. This is all in documents. And a second paragraph says... Well, it outlines how negotiations were underway to preserve the industrial substance of the Reich. And anyone who questioned this was a leftist radical, according to McKittrick. And after the war, these agreements with these industrialists will be invaluable. Now, we go back to the Secretary of State, Henry Morgenthau, and a guy called Dexter White, who in the USA said that these agreements are treasonous. They wanted Germany to be deindustrialized and the power of the German cartels broken. But the Dulles brothers and their allies argued that Germany has to be rebuilt as rapidly as possible as a barrier against the Soviet Union. So, you know, when the Cold War starts or basically almost immediately in 45, definitely by 46, they said we have to rebuild West Germany. And this view triumphed over Morgenthau and White. So the BIS returned the looted Nazi gold to Germany to build up the newly created West German industrialists. And, you know, he steps down as BIS president in 1946. He's appointed as a vice president of Chase National Bank in New York. There are a number of books about the bank and him. One of the better ones is called The Tower of Basel and subtitled The Shadowy History of the Secret Bank That Runs the World. And in the New York Times review of the book, it writes, the start of World War II ushered in BIS's darkest period and one of the most shameful ep episodes in the history of finance. Wow. There's many books and films that portray the journey of survivors' descendants trying to trace their... We will deal with that next week. We will see what happens when they try and get their own money back. Now, all that we've said this evening is obviously incomparable to human life. You know, money can never replace that. And there is a reliable post-Holocaust story, which I came across a number of years ago, possibly from Rabbi Avi Shafran, which puts things into perspective. There was a wedding in New York. And each table was laid with, you know, cutlery, silverware. And as is often the case, there is a bread basket in the middle of each table. One table had uh, the older generation seated there. And after the first course, the waiter comes to remove the bread basket and they asked if he could leave it there. OK, he comes back after the soup and he tries to remove the bread basket and they ask him to leave it there. Now, this basket is still full. It's untouched. So he comes back after the main course. You know, for sure, they don't need the bread anymore. And they still ask him to leave it. And one of the women at the table says to him, you're probably wondering what this is about. If you take a look at us seated around this table and you see everyone has a diamond ring, some of us are wearing pearls. I want you to know that all the jewelry that we have got with us wouldn't have been enough to buy that full basket of bread in front of you when we were in Auschwitz. We want it there so we can remind ourselves of where we were and where we are and the value of things in life. Wow. 
very powerful episode. And um, that line you said before especially struck me when you described that they transported the paintings with a higher value than human life. I think it just adds to the whole barbaric element. When you have an idea of wiping out Jews, when you see this this just greedy aspect of that just paints. So I don't know if I'd call it barbaric because that tends in most people's mind to paint a picture of, you know, cavemen or people in a, maybe in a third world country being yeah. repressed. I guess more conniving, we, shrewd. And, and that there was just utterly ruthless for carrying out what they wanted. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Robert Hirsch. And as usual, any questions, reviews, please send to podcasts at jlead.org.uk. Please make sure to like and subscribe so that you don't miss another episode. And we'll see you next week for the next installment on this series. Thank you. Thank you.